Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict. If you've been on the internet at all, you've probably heard a dude with questionable facial hair call a female character a Mary Sue. But what does that mean? Does it mean anything anymore? With us today to talk about Mary Sue's is Jen Albright of Have You Seen This, a podcast about obscure and misbegotten cinema. Hi, Jen. Thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. By the way, I am the original Mary Sue. I can do literally everything (laughs) perfectly. Nice. Mainly, though, what you do at your podcast is watch very strange, obscure movies that, that I've never heard of which is pretty exciting. Yeah, we talk about it all. We talk about well-regarded forgotten films. We talk about noble failures, and we talk about complete trash. Check us out on uh, HYSTpod on Twitter. You can also catch us on Patreon. And for two bucks a month, you can get some really cool bonus content, which is a fucking bargain. Yeah, that's cheap. (laughs) Most people want your five bucks a month, but we're only asking for two. So uh, check us out, patreon.com slash have you seen this? Sounds good. All right. Now, as an internet fandom expert. (laughs) Yes, I have wasted many an hour. (laughs) Right. As a person who, like me, has wasted far too much time on the internet, can you tell me where does the term Mary Sue originally come from? Well, it was a term that floated around as long as I was aware of fan fiction on the internet, which probably would have been about, oh, geez, very late 90s, I want to say. But it actually came from Star Trek fandom, which in a lot of ways is the the Ur fandom for a lot of fanish tendencies. Right, that's the origin of the term slash, too, in Star Trek. Yes, yeah, like, um, Star Trek was absolutely, like, critical and seminal fandom, you know, and mainly run by women, you know, is that's, like, a whole other discussion. But the Mary Sue term literally came from a fanfic in a Star Trek zine, I want to say in about the early 70s, maybe 1973, about that long ago yes and it was about a perfect girl named mary sue who's 15 and with a dazzling smile and trips onto the bridge of the enterprise and dazzles the crew and then dies very beautifully of a mortal disease <laughs> it's very love story you know it was that old yeah that's crazy yeah 1973 and it was a it was a wow. parody story called a trekkie's tale And um, it was obviously, it was taking off on some, you know, unfortunate trends that you tend to see, you will probably always see in derivative fan works, right? which is the tendency to create a self-insert character who is maybe just a little too perfect. And again, fandom often being very female-centered, usually it's a female self-insert. There is a kind of an offshoot called the Gary Stew. Right, but that's not a term you hear very much. No, you don't. And I mean, and that's opening like a whole other can of worms where it's like, you know, and this has been an ongoing debate in in fandom circles is like, do we judge female care more harshly? Like, are we being too hard on young writers just starting out by picking on them for their sues? But we have a whole podcast. (laughs) Right. So that's what it started as. It was this really specific thing, specific to fandom, to like a fan fiction self-insert mm-hmm. perfect girl character. Yeah, I guess because it was such an apt term that it stuck. Like, obviously, right. um, it it struck a chord with people. And, you know, that's why we're still using the term uh, more than 40 years later. 
And it's so perfect that it's the name Mary Sue, too, that she didn't give herself a name with a lot of, like, Ys and apostrophes or something. <laughs> I guess because it was the 70s before people before people were going to do that. Maybe that would be more of a thing. And, like, maybe it would depend on the fandom. Like, if you were writing in, like, Lord of the Rings fandom, you'd mm. make up something which was, like, Arwen, but not, like, right. Arwen with extra right. Zs. I don't know. <laughs> Gratuitous Es after every vowel. Right. <laughs> the George R. R. Martin rule. <laughs> All right, so that's how it started, but the terms kind of become something different, right? Yeah, obviously as fandom kind of expanded beyond the kind of like Xeroxed photocopy zine circles and out of the conventions that were really only attended by fans and stuff like that, as fandom kind of started to trickle into the mainstream, I think you had people becoming more aware of these kind of terms and it is kind of a trip for me to hear like fanish terms like being bandied about in like the mainstream popular culture i mean at least like on the internet but i mean i guess that's the nature of online because now online isn't just um kind of little walled off spaces for people who are savvy with computers anymore it's just become one big mush pile right so and you know more and more people are reading commentary about fan-derived works and stuff like that. Right. And I think what it kind of culminated in is in, you know, kind of the moment when, like, I did a double take was when um, The Force Awakens came out and uh, the character of Rey was immediately labeled as a Mary Sue. Absolutely. She was. I've heard that a lot, unfortunately. Now, this is really funny to me because I'm... Okay, like, I was... A Star Wars fan, like, as a teenager, like, growing up, like, when I was 14, like, I just fucking loved Star Wars. It was my favorite thing ever. Yeah, every kid loves Star Wars. It's the best yeah. for kids. It's just perfect for a young, a, a kid. It's awesome. Yeah, and so, to that end, because I was also, like, a creative little dork, I wrote my own <laughs> self-insert nice. Star Wars fan fiction about like a girl nice. who had the force and she got to study with Luke of Skywalker course. to become a Jedi. Of course. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, it wasn't, it was Jen. It wasn't Het or like that. Like uh, oh. it's uh, like teenage fan fiction sex is so embarrassing. I heard the word oh, that. No. <laughs> but <laughs> when I went to see Force Awakens, which like, you know, I enjoy, they're like, they're fine. Yeah. They're a little bit clunky to me. I mean, like it's Force Awakens is the only thing that I've ever seen by J.J. Abrams that I haven't despised. So that's a point, I guess. Mm. But when I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, I love Ray. She's just like my self-insert from when I was a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> like, she's really cool. I like her, you know, because she has a personality. She's like funny. She but she's experienced adversity. Right. She learns that she has this gift and she gets to go do cool things. And Han Solo wants her to, like, come on his ship and be part of his crew. I'm like, that is fucking cool. Right. But for some people, it's a bridge too far, I guess. Like, if it's a female I guess character. I- It's odd. I don't know. Like, what do you think? Luke Skywalker was absolutely like a kid adventure wish fulfillment for me. I mean, he's this small town boy who Mm -hmm. whose job is like moisture farming and going shopping, and he gets (laughs) to fucking be super psychic space prince and defeat all the bad guys and be the most amazing person ever. Like, that's so clearly a kid wish fulfillment vehicle, and that's fine. (laughs) That is okay. In media, some it is totally fine to have wish fulfillment stuff in media because it's it's fun. It's okay to have fun sometimes, and it just 
made me a little sad that when we saw a female equivalent to it, people had to get grumpy about it. Yeah, because it sort of begs the question of, aren't there a lot of, of uh, I mean, and it's, it, it's like a really simple question. It's like, aren't there a lot of like badass, like very highly powered, like male characters that are kind of wish fulfillment for the reader? Absolutely. I mean, you know, because I like, again, like as being an avid reader as a teenager, like I read a bunch of the Ian Fleming Bond novels. Bond right. is very much a wish fulfillment character, both both on page. Yeah, he's a super spy screen. who's super smart, super athletic, super suave, Fuck's always good. gets the girl. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like he's good at everything. He's a complete, he's just the embodiment of that like mid 20th century male fantasy down to like the cool suit and the company car and 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 everything which again totally fine he's a fun character it's fun Mm -hmm. to watch yeah and it's funny how we just like accept that is a kind of like a right what like because bond is someone that a lot of us like project fantasies onto absolutely on the most basic level you know it's like yeah you want to be him or you want to fuck him you know like that's pretty much how it works Right, and every other kid in a tuxedo posing for a prom picture does the Bond pose. <laughs> Why do girls always do you that? You cannot help it. Why do girls it's always do the... not to do that. Girls always do the back-to-back <laughs> Charlie's Angels thing with the finger guns. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that too. It's Charlie's Angels or Bond. <laughs> you have to do one of them. And again, that's... That's okay. There's nothing wrong with a silly fulfillment projecting your fantasy to a person. It's fun. Now, Charlie's Angels, were they comically overpowered? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. I know that they were three little girls from the Academy. I think one of them <laughs> played tennis with, with a grenade one time. That's what I understand. Well, because I remember the show being, obviously, you know, the, the <laughs> show was like Aaron spelling corn, but, you know, the movie right. was a little more c- kind of like w- winking at you a little bit. And like playing with like right. the, the fantasy aspects of the women's, but um, yeah, I guess I guess because Cameron Diaz was like goofy, she wasn't like a Mary Sue in that or anything. <laughs> right. Yeah, it had a little bit more of a sense of girl power, tongue in cheek. It was a really funny, cute movie, definitely. Yeah. I mean, they did play up a little bit of the hey, these are three extremely attractive women yeah. who have to disguise themselves in sexy outfits for legitimate reasons that are not a plot contrivance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Correct me if I'm if you think I'm wrong because I think mm-hmm. my frame of reference is, you know, just because of my generation is like pushed like a few years back, but like it seemed like female wish fulfillment usually consisted of these kind of you know, it was like sexy adventures, but yeah, like nothing too, Absolutely. like nothing too crazy, nothing too gritty, and nothing that necessarily dived that much into the the character or backstory of the the, right. the female character. Because you'd have like a silly romp like Charles Angels, and again, like if you can think of a counterexample, like please tell me because if I'm talking out of my ass, mm. <laughs> like I want to know because um. Like, if you take Bond, like, he, they, as they explored the character, he experienced adversity, you know, like, on Honor Majesty's Secret Service. His wife was killed. Living. They pointed a laser at his testicles at one time. <laughs> well, even before that, like, with uh, Timothy Dalton's last outing as Bond and uh, not not living. The second Timothy, his very close friend was his wife on his wedding day. And that right. license was to that kill. Was that license to kill? Yeah. Yeah, where he loses his license to kill. Yeah, like in an American cop movie. 
Yes. You're off the case. You're too <laughs> close to the action. Turn in your badge. We're taking away your zeros. <laughs> you know, and then that turns the, the narrative into like a revenge story, basically. I'm trying to think of like female wish fulfillment centered revenge stories. Hmm. I mean, you have novel in a movie like True Grit, but that's not like wish fulfillment. <laughs> you know, it's like a it's like a, a story of a girl like hiring this guy to help her. I mean, I don't know if you want to say the bride and kill bill. She does get revenge, but I'm not sure if that's a wish fulfillment revenge so much as I want to watch a hot chick with a sword decapitate people. Well, yeah. And I mean, like Uma Thurman is extremely <laughs> cool. Oh, totally. They do. I mean, I, I think wish fulfillment characters tend to be more like in romances, it seems like, rather than in adventure stories. Like I'm thinking of Twilight. I mean, that's obviously total teen girl wish fulfillment yeah, blatant self-insert. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And um, isn't that also true of the Outlander series? Could be. Because I heard a story about how, I, I forget her, Diana Gabaldon, I think her name is. She hmm. was inspired to write the story because she watched an old Doctor Who episode with the character, the hmm. Doctor's companion, Jamie McCrimmon, who's like a kind of a young, sexy Scotsman. All right. Um, I don't know much about the Outlander series at all. I'm sorry. That's literally like all I know about it. I just found it extremely funny because apparently she's also like really <laughs> against fan fiction. Oh, no. Like you might want to verify that, <laughs> but that is what I what I had heard. And I was like, well, um, this seems like you took a notion that you had and then you turned it into a right. book and like not judging. Yeah, which is fine. That's, well, that's the basis of so much literature or art anyway. You're inspired by other stuff and you bring something new to it. That happens a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but, but, you know, I mean, and that's like another perennial in fandom is creators. And you understand it. Like creators become very protective of their copyright. And to a degree, you, oh, of course. you have to be because you can be totally blindsided if someone's like, oh, no, like I sent you the script, remember? So now right. I'm going to sue you or whatever. But... Right. I mean, you can get fucked over by so many different people if you're not super, super careful. Mm -hmm. It's why a lot of places don't... A lot of places don't accept unsolicited submissions. Like, they just don't want the oh. the legal trouble. So... Right, right. I mean, they don't want to read your sues, but anyway. <laughs> we were speaking of sues. Yeah, they don't want to read your terrible fiction either. But, uh, <laughs> yes, because of legal trouble. That's the real reason. Really. Otherwise, I'd love to read your terrible fan fiction. <laughs> I was trying to remember like a very iconic, which was Marissa Flores, another Star Trek figure who was based on a one-off character from a Next Generation episode, a little girl who got stuck in the lift with a couple of other kids and Captain Picard. And, oh, Picard hates kids, but how is he going to manage this situation? So he makes her his number one, you know, and then he tells her, she of did, course. yeah, she did a good job, you know, being the crew or whatever. Well, um, there was a guy, Yay. there was a guy who extrapolated an entire character out of that one off. He gave her a last name based on the actress's name. Um, and he wrote a whole series of huh. stories about this really awesome girl, Marissa Flores, who's a Starfleet officer at 15, um, and solved uh -huh. the Kobayashi Maru in like half an hour or something like that. Oh, it's a girl, Wesley Crusher. Yes, and funny thing about Wesley One Crusher. One of those was enough, man. Yeah, and um, yeah, I read a little bit about Wesley Crusher because he's kind of like an archetypal um, Sue character. Right, that everybody revolted against. 
Yes, and but the thing was is that he really was kind of a self-insert for Gene Roddenberry. Oh, I mean, no. Roddenberry's middle name was Wesley. Oh my god. For a brief period, one of the other showrunners tried to talk him into making it Leslie, a female oh. prodigy. Hmm. Um, and I found it quite interesting because that producer was like, you know, hey, like, people always do, like, adolescent boys. Like, why don't we take a look at the trials of adolescent girls? But, unfortunately, oh, yeah, yeah. that went by the wayside, and uh, we got Wesley Crusher. Huh. Yeah. Seems kind of odd, too, thinking that, okay, here's a self-insert character you've based on yourself who's terrified of girls. Just terrified of them. <laughs> Every single opportunity he has to get laid, he runs screaming from it. I have questions. <laughs> I have many questions. <clears throat> Gene himself did not show. <laughs> yeah. But that's Wesley. To, to Will Wheaton. I actually maintain that Will Wheaton is far worse. Oof. That is setting a bar high. <laughs> that is, that's fighting words. I think if he heard that, he'd have to duel. Like, that's how serious that accusation is. Well, I'm pretty sure he blocked me on Twitter. Oh, oh shit. Bring it. Oh, so you can't fight him. That's bullshit. You can't defend your honor. Yeah. Although I think he migrated to Mastodon because <laughs> everybody was too mean to him. Right. So let us move on. Is there a difference between a Mary Sue and just a general, broadly defined heroic protagonist that the audience is supposed to project themselves onto, which is literally mm -hmm. every protagonist, all the protagonists? Like, how do you draw the line? And if it matters at all? Well, if you go back, if you go back to the source, which is this A Trekkie's Tale, obviously written in response to some of the, f the perennial foibles of fan fiction. I think what a Mary Sue is really defined as is being just comically badly written and to the point of not being believable as a character. Right. I think that even reading in genres like science fiction or fantasy, you know, where you can stretch the rules of the, the universe a little bit, or, you know, watching watching genre uh, fiction right. on TV or in movies, there's only so much disbelief that you can suspend. Yeah. And at times, obviously, these things are, are debatable. I think, like, sometimes, you know, this is a perennial problem with, like, for example, my dad, like, he'll be watching some popcorn movie, be like, oh, that's bullshit. That's not realistic. And I'm like, dad, it's Spider-Man. Who cares? You know? Right. Like, <laughs> This werewolf movie's unrealistic. Yeah, but it's like, well, you know, like, Spider-Man has to have, like, laws of physics that he abides by, like, fine, whatever, you know, like, yeah. there is a point where it becomes, like, too ridiculous to believe. So I guess if, if uh, a precocious chick with, like, a 200 IQ who can do advanced math and calculate ship's coordinates in her head, and she also has ice purple eyes... And a perfect body, and all everyone on the crew loves her. It's like, well, that's like a pretty blatant example, right? But it seems I really don't know if maybe just with the push to create more diverse and interesting female main characters in genre fiction and on the screen, especially with kind of the bullshit culture wars as out of control as they are, like, right? Are we at a point where you know you're just going to get this? absurd pushback to like any female character who isn't completely passive right 
who's who has any kind of capabilities like going back to the example of ray um i know she's very very good at stuff um and at a lot wide variety of stuff which is a little like not super realistic but again it's a space wizard movie and luke skywalker <laughs> again is not mr realism here he is he is a psychic space wizard farm boy who gets good enough to be an expert pilot over the course of an afternoon he learns how to sword fight over the course of like two hours <laughs> but that's okay because whatever it's a fucking it's a fun movie like we're allowed to be silly a little bit and suspend that disbelief for the for the sake of having fun well i mean like let's break it down because like i actually am you know because i do find it very funny how much i identified ray with my own like you know youthful like self-insert character but right. it's like is she really that like unbelievable because you know okay so yeah luke's like a whiny kid who lives kind of a barren life on a moisture farm but he's a really good pilot and good enough that they let him have an x-wing and then he right. saves the day by making the critical shot against the death star right. you know like okay without even using the special equipment he just looked inside himself because like, he's got the force because he's just so inherently special just he yeah just is just special just because <laughs> and isn't that a thing isn't that a thing that like some star wars fans are pissed off about now that like the, right. the force isn't like a special talent it's it's like oh well no just anybody can do it right anyone with an impure inferior bloodline can do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and a subpar skull shape i don't know <laughs> yeah like um but you know, Ray also, and again, because Force Awakens is like, I'm sorry, yes, I liked it, but it was pretty fucking derivative. Um, you know, Obviously. Ray also lives on a barren planet, eking out an existence. You know, she appears to have a kind of uh, mechanical and engineering facility, which you can justify because, you know, if she spent a lot of time like hunting and picking amongst like dead uh, star destroyers. Right. She, okay, you know, she hangs out with robots. She could have learned a thing or two. Right. And then, okay, like, she has an affinity for the Force, which, okay, like, that's fine, too. And then and then the other problem that I think I heard people were having is that Ray's talent with the Force is idiopathic, and that's bad. Like, it makes sense that Luke has the Force because his dad was Anakin Skywalker, but right. if Ray just... If Ray's parents were nobodies, that's not right somehow. <sighs> I'm sorry. I'm kind of trying to talk my way through a lot of, like, the fan objections just because it's, like... Like, I really want to try to understand. It's, like, am I too easy on Ray? Like, is she a bullshit character? <laughs> you know, right. like, is, is Luke, like, the superior one? Or is she more bullshit than any other character in this show? I mean, we have tons of wish fulfillment characters. Han Solo is, you know, this dashing rogue who's a perfect shot. And the space princess mm -hmm. falls in love with him. And his best friend's a werewolf. And, <laughs> and he's super good and clever and shit. Like, that... That's a little bit of wish fulfillment there, and again, I, guess, I mean, I guess, and fun. I guess because like they kind of um, maybe people forgive Han Solo because it's like, yeah, he's dashing his fucking Harrison forward. He looks great in those pants, you know. Right. He, he, gets he the can princess. work a vest somehow. Yeah, but he also there is also a touch of comedy to him because he's we see his his sometimes unjustified arrogance, and we can kind of smile at it while right. not disliking him. 
you know, or like when he'll be on the Falcon and then there'll be a bump and like toolbox will, you know, like they, 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 they don't make him like a perfect character. But I mean, Ray doesn't exactly strike me as, you know, I've seen people accuse her of having no personality. It was a little bit strange to me. Hmm. I don't know if you've seen him, but the Red Letter Media, like Mr. Plinkett assessment, the prequels. Right. Who's the protagonist? I, I don't know. Protagonist. Yeah. Like. Protagonist. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Mr. Plinkett, Mike Staclasa, asks his interviewees to describe each Star Wars character. I think using only like non-physical adjectives. And so they're able to do it with the original trilogy characters, but with the prequel right. characters, they're stymied. Like, oh, describe Qui-Gon Jinn. Uh, yeah, he's stoic, he's, you know, like I can't think of he's anything. He's a guy. And, you know, if I were to try to describe Ray, I'd be like, okay, you know, she's a, she's tough. She's got kind of a hard shell, but she's sassy. Yeah. Her shushing BB-8 and him being taken aback, you know, it's like, that's a character moment that tells you something about yeah. the character. But to some people, she's boring and sucks. I don't know what I'm missing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think this might be a particular problem to Star Wars too, just in that so many of the people I've met who refer to themselves as diehard Star Wars fan, their favorite thing to do is to complain about the movies. Well, that's fandom. I mean, just look at Doctor Who fandom. Just all the time? Like, they'll buy every bit of merchandise but never stop complaining about how much they hate the whatever the most recent movie is? And it's sort of like, why, why do you do this? <laughs> I don't understand. Look at Doctor Who fandom going back to practically the first Doctor. That was in the early 60s. Doctor Who fans love to bitch about the show. <laughs> it's right. Like, Who's the current Doctor? I don't like him. He's too silly. I don't like him. He's too sexy. Yeah. Every time they switch a Doctor, everybody gets really mad. He's too whatever. Yes. And, you know, and I mean, that's that's fandom for you because... Right. And I think like fandom and, and popular culture dominates a lot of our discourse because it's easy to have an opinion. It's like having an opinion on the Kardashians. Like the things about our world that are that are scary and pressing are often like very hard to understand. It's hard to tease out the details of why we are where we are. Like if you want to look at yeah. climate change, like not only is that fucking scary, it's hugely complex. Like who do you blame? Like do we blame people? What do we do about it? Right. Who the fuck has the time to understand that except fucking science nerds? And we don't need to listen to those exactly. guys. Exactly. But everyone went and saw fucking Force Awakens, so everyone can have an opinion <laughs> on everyone went to see Last Jedi and can have an opinion on whether Rian Johnson sucks or not <laughs> and in terms of media landscape uh, a think piece about the force awakens is going to get more clicks unfortunately than a piece about global warming which is yeah. a real bummer <laughs> yeah and like i completely include myself i'm running a dumb movie podcast i'm putting a ton of energy into it and then a friend of mine will share on social media an article about climate change and I'll maybe read half of it and then I'll have to tap out because I'm too fucking depressed. Yeah. And then it's like, what do I do? Uh, I don't know, but I can, I sure as fuck can have an opinion on this terrible B-movie from 1982, you know? Right. <laughs> right. It's things, small things at a scale we can understand that, that don't make you want to hide under a blanket all day. They're fun to talk about. Yeah. And it doesn't make you think about your own mortality. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, we all, and we should also remember that this kind of like scared rabbit mentality also likes capital because uh, I'm sure Disney is ecstatic about 
a couple of thousand very indignant man babies making a disproportionate amount of noise. Oh, on absolutely! Media. It, it's gotten to the point where it's like, all right, this is just part of the premiere. This is this is a, the standard marketing campaign. <laughs> they're, I'm sure they're deliberately every time they do something, they probably search all over mm-hmm. Twitter like, okay, let's find a guy who's mad about the Black Mermaid. Let's find a guy who's yeah. Let's find some guys who are mad about Frozen again. Who are still mad? There are some people. There are MRAs are still very mad at Frozen for some reason. Um, like it's just a standard part of the marketing strategy now to find a couple of assholes who are being like weird and racist or whatever, and and to make us all feel like we're really accomplishing something by watching this like half a billion dollar corporate product movie. Well, the most woke thing you can do is to buy a ticket to a movie which stars some women and maybe had a woman behind the camera. Who knows? (laughs) Supporting Hollywood, which is a great place for women, is the wokest thing you can do. (laughs) It's a good industry for women that has always supported the female gender. Yeah, and it was, I mean... I don't know. I don't know how recently they removed it, or if they removed it. For the longest time, at the shopping center at Hollywood and Highland in Hollywood, you know, built on the former set of D.W. Griffiths Intolerance, now a shopping mall. Wow. Um, they had a sculpture of a casting couch. Wow. Which is like, oh. and you know, is is presented as like, oh, ha, yeah, you know this trope, you know, that you have to, like, suck a little dick to get a roll? Like, it's funny, right? <laughs> it's like, well, it's really not if it's you analyze it. Up. Like, it's fucked up. <laughs> Which, and I think they may have gotten rid of it in... Get your picture light, taken with uh, a cardboard cutout of Victor Selva. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> that, and that guy keeps working. He keeps making movies. People keep giving him work. Why? It's not, it's not like he has, like, Roman Polanski levels of talent. He made Jeepers Creepers. He is very replaceable. It's, and it's, the, the most incredible thing about Selva is, like, he literally molested a kid, the lead actor of his film, on his first fucking feature. Yeah. First feature, he molested the lead actor yeah. of his film. There's so many reasons why that's bad and people are like well, 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 well like on top of the obvious it's also a labor issue i think if i if i can put on my little dsa hat um <laughs> if you're mistreating yeah. the people who work for you maybe you don't get to have people under your authority any yeah, crazy it's, idea it's i mean how many chances is max so landis fucked. getting his father decapitated I, several <sighs> children with a helicopter and still got work after that that's pretty impressive yeah, and I mean, you know, the thing with, you know, Max Landis continually working is like, well, he's connected. Right. His father... His father, who decapitated several children. I cannot stress this enough. As uh, my co-host Tim and I from his pod call him, uh, John Landis, the famous murderer. Right. In spite of his star having fallen significantly since his high point in the 80s, he still has a lot of cachet and clout yeah. in the industry. So you understand, like, why, okay, you know, it's fucked up, but you understand, like, why Max Landis can work, right. you know. But Victor Salva? Yeah. Like, what, what the fuck has he made that, you know, it's like, okay, like, Powder. I, um, <laughs> yeah, like, I think, you know, for example, like, I think Rowan Polanski is, like, a monster, but. Like, you, legit, he does make good movies, I mean, I. I gotta yeah. admit, like, he's a brilliant filmmaker who likes to sexually violate young girls, but but at least I could understand, like, I would kind of want to watch one of his movies because he's good at it. I'm I'm not, like, itching to watch Jeepers Creepers. I, 
I feel like exactly. another director could handle <laughs> Jeepers Creepers. Yeah, like um, if you take just his horror work alone, like Repulsion or The Tenant, mm-hmm. iconic work, you know, absolutely worth seeing. Yeah. And I do believe, I do believe in even monstrous artists' work being accessible. With- albeit put in their proper context it's like let's not right. l- like let's not elide anything like let's just let's fucking talk about this let's talk about what enabled to happen right. you know jeeper creeper jeepers creepers is like another like kind of okay horror movie yeah in an absolute glut of kind of okay horror movies like in the wake of scream and- like what the fuck yeah I think I think it's connections too. It was who was it? Was it, he was friends with some very important filmmaker who I'm very sad about now. Someone whose work I really admire, I, and it made me really really sad to know that he was you involved. Know, I I joke uh, with people that I've had on our show a few times about like, oh great, we're like the we're the fucking Kitty Fiddler film podcast because we have talked like openly about artists who are also abusers. Uh, we talked about the producer the music producer jonathan king because he made films in his own defense he's absolutely vile person you know we talked about the lead actor and all of the movie because i you know i believe in pushing those kind of things into the open yeah and now i'm like god like i really feel like we're gonna have to fucking talk about victor salva on have on have you seen this at some point (laughs) because like it does just talking about it, it just kind of boggled my mind. It's like, yeah, the guy working. And I know that the cliche of Hollywood is it's a disgusting place and like the worst people alive, right. like crawl its corridors and make piles of money. But it's like, you know, you think that like the last, the absolute last straw would be someone who fucks kids. And but filmed it's himself not. doing it. Jesus On the set Christ. Of his movie. That's really like three levels of unforgivable Ugh. and. Meanwhile, like, so many talented women (laughs) just don't, like, get another chance. They don't get another shot. We we can't let them in. That is absolutely true. I have been looking into, um, because very soon on our pod, we're going to cover Bright Lights Big City from the Jay McInerney novel. It was a movie with Michael J. Fox and flopped. But that was set up to be directed by a woman, Mm. Joyce Chopra, and she was fired. They thought she was taking a little bit too much time setting up and discussing shots or something like that. Oh no, caring about your work. <laughs> so she's acting like a male auteur. Like how many fucking times did yeah. they reshoot every scene in The Shining? Like a million. Oh, you just asked Shelley Duvall about yeah, that. Yeah, she went insane can. as a result. Shelley's not doing too well lately. But point being, this was not isolated at the time. There was a cluster of female directors being hired at that period in the 80s and then getting fired. Wow. The most obvious example being Elaine May on on Ishtar, hmm. because that that movie went wildly out of control. Right. But there were other female filmmakers being fired at the same time, like they were given a shot and then they were like yanked at the first opportunity. Huh. Now, what I'd like to do is kind of compare this to the experiences of you know male directors given a shot and you know were they allowed to like fuck it up repeatedly or did they get bounced or you know what causes a male director to be fired when or not fired when a female director is so but that's something i gotta but i'm talking about my show and your show i'm sorry that's (laughs) okay like what i'm thinking of is the director of american psycho like she really hasn't gotten mary heron that much work like I, I could just imagine you know that's an iconic movie it's got cult status it's infinitely quoted and a bunch of people who really shouldn't model themselves after the main character mary heron really hasn't gotten a ton of work after that well and that's an interesting question and it's something that 
it's a thing that obsesses me and is partially what led me to do the kind of show that I'm doing, mm. where we take a second look at things. Because when you see a director or any creative who has moved on from their field or maybe made a splash right. and then not really come back, there are so many reasons why that could be the case. Right. And in particular, when it comes to female creators, I think it's, you know, obviously you don't want to assume anything about a person's like personal story. Right, because it could be a choice, whatever, you know. Yeah, but if you read, and in fact, you know, I was just reading something about it today, a female animator talking about, you know, in the wake of the cancellation of the Netflix show Tuca and Birdie, how she was kind of treated like shit by men that she'd worked with. Damn. And how that made her career in animation a lot harder. And, you know, obviously she stuck it out, but there are a lot of women who didn't. Yeah. And... And that always gets translated into, well, women can't take it, or they're not trying hard enough, or their skin isn't thick enough, which, you know, obviously, to make it in the media industry. Yeah, you got to be tough, obviously. But there's a line, I feel like, between like, oh, you've got to tolerate being sexually assaulted repeatedly. What? (laughs) Yeah. And there's a difference between like, having people like shit, shit talk you, but and then just being disrespected. Right in the way that women are traditionally disrespected. And I've, you know, I've worked in male-dominated fields and, like, male-dominated offices, and I've been extremely fortunate. But, you know, I've had moments where people have said shit to me and have been like, excuse me? Like, I know you wouldn't fucking say that to a man. Right. I mean, I had a guy once tell me I was too pretty to be an AV tech. Like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, do you want me to help with this meeting or not? Yeah. (laughs) It's... Oh, God. Anyway, we got way off the tangent, but we're talking... Where the hell were we in this outline? Um, well, hold all hold all my bloviating, and maybe you can make it a bonus That's okay. Sure. Patreon content. All right. Um, if you if you want me to be like... I can, I can hold forth a little less. I'm that's sorry. That's okay. No problem. No problem. We're talking about women's issues broadly. It vaguely connects to the idea. So it's pretty easy to see that the term Mary Sue tends to be applied to female characters more uh, more than male characters. But what are some other, we've touched on this earlier, but what are some other beloved male characters who you think could potentially fall under the term Mary Sue or maybe the male version Gary Stu? Like we talked about James Bond. We talked about Wesley Crusher. <laughs> well, look at all the characters that Tom Cruise usually plays. Mm. I mean, like just look at Top Gun. Mm. Like it's a movie that is like, you know, the environment is extremely fucking cool and they do cool shit all day and there's very little conflict. Like, the main conflict of Top Gun is, I mean, yeah, it's kind of about Maverick and his dad, but it's also about, like, who will win the Top Gun trophy? (laughs) (laughs) Whose gun is the toppest? Yeah, and it's not like they're in, you know, fucking Vietnam or something. (laughs) But, so they have to have, like, these rogue MiGs come in at the end so they can have like showdown like it's it's they have to like gin up this kind of like reheated cold war conflict but you know like look at tom cruise's character maverick like he's a fucking cool ass guy he's a naval aviator like fucks the hottest chick he breaks the rules but he gets away with it anyway even though the military is generally it generally frowns upon that it's my understanding yeah like everyone's like you're you're dangerous, but you're the best goddamn pilot I know. You know, it's like that. If that isn't masculine wish fulfillment, I don't know what it is. And in fact, like a very close friend of mine, 
I'm sure his story was not unique. That movie made a massive impression on him. And, you know, he joined ROTC because he wanted to become a fucking naval aviator. I don't like who else? I would argue Harry Potter for kids. Yeah, he yeah. I mean, he's this magic boy wizard who's very special just because he was born and he has a zillion yeah. dollars from goblins. <laughs> from, from, from goblins. A weirdly anti-Semitic caricature yeah. <laughs> goblins. From goblins with um, unfortunate implications. And he didn't really have yeah. to do anything. Like, oh, he's faded because he has the scar. Like, he didn't do anything. He didn't do that. He got lucky. He got... It, it, it cho- A lot of chosen he, one fiction is like that in fantasy novels where the hero is the hero because he has the right birthmark. He has the mm-hmm. right bloodline. And it's like, you're you're so special. You're so special just because of some inherent <laughs> thing. Yeah, and I mean, it's under, it's like, it's understandable, obviously, from the, the fantasy perspective. Like, everyone wants to feel special. Of course. And it's not to say that people don't have often innate gifts that they can cultivate. Of course. But it's interesting how, again, jumping back to um, Star Wars and, like, Last Jedi, Rey's kind of, like, idiopathic talent for the Force out of nowhere is somehow seen as, like, not appropriate for the series because it doesn't hew to that trope of intrinsic kind of kind of genetic but not genetic like it was in the prequels we kind of fumbled that a little bit (laughs) we don't speak (laughs) of that we're gonna pretend that kind of thing yeah like they realized that they tipped their hand with making with trying to make it scientific so they pulled it back to the spiritual and it's something which i don't understand about fans in general i mean i do and i don't you know obviously we all like our comfort food we all like to eat frosting right out of the can of course sometimes we don't want to be challenged that much but I don't see, again, as an artist, I don't see the utility in just doing the same thing over and over again. Right. And I think it should be considered a sign of vitality if a franchise is like stretching a little bit and kind of taking a look at the old tropes. Absolutely. Which is hilarious to say, considering, again, like how derivative Force Awakens was. It was just a complete retread of New Hope. But, you know, and I think they went a little bit they went a little bit further with, you know, Last Jedi. Absolutely. I legitimately I legitimately think that they were trolling the negative fans with Admiral Holdo. <laughs> I mean, she's a she's a lady admiral with purple hair. That is a troll character. And I'm yes. not saying that's bad. I was okay with it. I was like, whatever. You know, I don't have a problem with her arguing with Poe Dameron. Who tells a male protagonist to sit down and shut up and she's right to do so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's like, again, I... I fully believe that they were doing that to be like, you know what? Like you toxic male fans can't tell us what to do, you know, which is like, oh, like maybe it's silly, but it's like, well, you know, you guys made a lot of noise. This is what you get. Yeah. And this is, and this is what, unfortunately, this is what creativity has turned into in the era of social media, where you have this immediate reactiveness between creators and fans, which can be very hard to negotiate. Absolutely. I mean, when you see how fast a show or an idea can get killed if the reaction is negative yeah. enough. And, that, and how quickly people like just kind of went up each other on freaking out about something. It's pretty yeah. intense. A little bit worrying as a creative, you know? Yeah. And um, I mean, I don't know if you've talked about it on the show or if you're planning to talk about it. It might be worth talking about um, the young adult community oh, and how toxic that oh, has become in God. certain sections. I'm a little sections. nervous about wading into that because holy shit, that's, 
that is that is a goddamn swamp. That is that's a mess. Oh, it's it's alarm it's alarming. I've heard that like young actual young people and mm-hmm. teens who are into young adult fiction just don't go on these communities anymore because they're like, what the fuck? This is all terrifying. Yeah, they're worse than bronies. It's terrifying. <laughs> they're legitimately I'm not worse. We were talking about other Sues or Stews. Yes. Other Sues or Um, I don't know. I mean, you mentioned Harry Potter, which is like, Harry Potter is pretty, he's a pretty lucky motherfucker. Yeah, he's a lucky little shit. Fuck you. (laughs) Fuck you, Harry. I still haven't read the last book. That's okay. I've read the six. Yeah, let's like, yeah, You know, you know what happens. (laughs) He wins. The end. Dumbledore dies. Yeah. And then everybody gets mad about Ron and Henny. Right. Let's see. Self-insert Gary Stu characters. Possibly Robin Hood. Um, maybe. Yeah, like, well, where's the, um, where is the, um, line between folk hero mm. and Gary Stu? Because, I mean, um. I mean, folk heroes are deliberately kind of vague because it's this archetypical sort of idea. It's not really meant to be super um, detailed with a detailed backstory. It's something, it's a cipher for your cultural value, your hopes. Yeah, he represents, I think he represents justice, right. essentially. And I, I mean, maybe you can draw a line's character mm-hmm. in Death Wish. I think probably from him, maybe to possibly to Batman, right? Because he's like vigilante. Yeah, vigilante yeah. who ultimately does support the the traditional system of power. Really, when you get down to it. Oh, absolutely. He's a loyalist to the King Richard. <laughs> yeah, and especially because the vigilante is a corrective to a system that is wrong. Yeah. It's like the problem isn't really with you know, an overbearing, like, fascist police that's not fascist enough. (laughs) Absolutely. Like, oh, if only we didn't need warrants to do our job. All those very popular action heroes of particularly the 80s. Like, think of the the biggest action stars of the 80s. Absolutely. Clint Eastwood, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I'm thing is like I you know I grew up watching these kinds of movies. My dad like I still they're you know, tons you of fun. Enjoy I love them. I love them all. They're yeah, terrible, like, but I just well not terrible, but like I can appreciate the fact that this is ridiculous, but they're great. Yeah. I loved Dirty Harry. It's a great movie yeah, when like, he's jumping on the bus. It's just rad. Hell, even like Pauline Kael like recognized its virtues, even if she was calling it overtly fascist it you know? totally 100 I mean, percent is a fascist film and it's awesome it it's so much fun movie. yeah yeah so <laughs> you got your dirty harrys you got your charles bronson's um shading into the 80s you have these were you know i really feel like these came around in the wake of like and i'm not saying anything that we don't already know already mm-hmm. you know this is in the era of like vietnam war post-vietnam oh, yeah. war disillusionment America asserting itself as a superpower in the face of like the Cold War, you know, so of course you were going to have these very inflated, powerfully masculine figures on the screen. Of course. I mean, and like if you take like a John Rambo, you know, like in his early incarnations, he was a tragic figure. He was somebody who was chewed up and spit out by his own government. Right. And then he became a cartoon. Like a little world cartoon. You know, right. there's a fucking Rambo cartoon show for kids. And he fought alongside the Mujahideen, which is pretty awkward. <laughs> in retrospect, <laughs> he, he helped. He, he completely helped Osama bin Laden. Um, I was going to say, I wonder if he ever got to meet Osama and like watch porn with him or something. Oh, God, I bet. <laughs> 
Um, CIA asset, uh, Osama bin Laden. <laughs> no. But anyway, um, also known as Tim. No, um, yeah, so as the 80s wore on, got these more and more cartoonish Gary Stews. I feel like you could make a thesis out of that. Oh, yeah. Because just look at how beloved, you know, and not just Stallone, like, just look at, like, Arnold. Absolutely. Even on the downslope of his career, his star really has not dimmed. People still love him. They love his movies. They love his persona. It doesn't fucking matter that he's not, like, a natural or skilled actor. Like, (laughs) he is just a pure block of charisma. Absolutely. Like, that is absolutely a projection for, like, the the male audience. But a guy who plays a indestructible robot or a muscular super soldier is somehow not unbelievable. Right. But a teenage girl getting off a desert planet is. I know I keep coming back to Ray, but it's just very fresh in my mind. I liked Ray. <laughs> I did! I'm yeah, <laughs> I liked Ray. Come on. She's fun. I like the new movies. Yeah. I will not be persuaded otherwise. I thought they were a good time. They were good fun. Well, my thing is, like, I had a good time in the theater. Like, I'm a little worry- weary of, like, fan discourse about them. Nasty. Yeah. And um, I don't want to say, like, politically motivated, but it is. But, like, in a, in a stupid-ass, like, culture war, like, ew, girls kind of way. Yeah. And. Or on the other side, like, it is so important that we have. Yeah. This girl space was well. I mean, I'm, I'm. I think it's nice for girls to have a character like that they can look at. But mm-hmm. talking about it, like my God, this billion-dollar corporation's yeah. decision to uh, <laughs> reach out to more demographics in order to maximize their profit potential truly is the most important thing. <laughs> yeah, and that is like. I mean, you pretty much summed up my view on the whole thing, where it's like the best thing that I can say about representation in media and other similar hot button topics is like oh well you know that's that's nice you know like i'm not like i'm not against a movie like black panther i just don't see what good it necessarily does materially for anyone except disney execs right i mean it is kind of cool to go to i mean uh usually every year um tim and i will go to either WonderCon or Comic-Con or both, you know, after Black Panther came out, we're at WonderCon and there were all these black cosplayers. Nice. And like Wakandan costumes like, oh, okay, that's cool. You know, that's great. I don't have, I don't have a fucking yeah. problem with this. This is fine. I, I'm just a little bit nervous because um, it is still a billion dollar corporation that does what billion dollar corporations do. And the example I like to go to exactly. is when Disney made a, Disney Pixar made a movie called Coco, which is about like uh, the Mexican Mm -hmm. Day of the Dead. And and it was praised for being like really culturally sensitive and showing a lot of respect for men culture, which that's great. That's terrific. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But while they were trying to make this movie during the marketing campaign, the company actually tried to copyright the phrase Dia de los Muertos. (laughs) Of course they did. That, what the fuck? Of course they did. (laughs) They tried to, like, just lay their flag on someone else's entire culture. Just awful. Which is so They backed off, finally. But I'm wondering, did they back off because they decided, like, this was going to be the right thing to do? Or because they were worried about missing out on ticket sales in Mexico, you know? It could have been that, or it could have just been, like, somebody told them, like, you actually can't copyright a cultural holiday. I mean, I really feel... I really feel like it would have had to have been an obstacle like that to be Disney. Right. And like that is, I mean, and I'm old enough to remember before 
sugar skulls and stuff like that were like a hipster thing, you know, before kind of like, mm. like white Angelinos like myself discovered and like, oh, this is really great, yeah. you know, and like, that's a mixed bag. Um, I'm not like a hard line or on cultural appropriation, yeah. but it's like, it's like fucking, it's like, be respectful. Look at what you're doing, yeah. you know, recognize that it's not necessarily yours. Yeah. And like, consider like, if I'm... If I'm taking this, am I taking it away from someone? Right. Like, am I really elevating it as much as I think it is? And, you know, maybe to a degree, like, Disney did elevate the awareness in the culture, but it's like... Yeah, and I mean, I think it's cr- pretty nice, especially at a time like now, to have this mainstream that's a positive portrayal of mm-hmm. uh, Mexican people. Um, I, I think that's a good thing. But when you're, like, literally laying a legal financial claim on someone else's culture, that's really fucked up by yeah, any like, standard. Yeah, and, like, meanwhile, Disney Park employees, like, living in their cars because yeah. they're living wage. Right. What has Disney done, again, materially right. for... The Latinx population of, say, just Anaheim. Right. Oh, you know, we we provide jobs. You know, it's like, well, what, like, really, like, what, what, yeah. what are you doing besides just being like, well, we really respect your culture, so we're going to put it on the screen. Yeah. Like, we're going to make money off of you because we're we're great. We're good people for this. Yeah, and like in a more liberal political time for myself, you know, I I totally believe in this. It's like, oh, representation is so important. It's so important. But it's because like I didn't have an, I didn't really have an understanding of class and power in the United States and how that also plays out in the film industry. And after so many white children's movies protagonists seeing a couple of children's movies protagonists who aren't white is really refreshing. It is really nice. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, I can't be like, oh, this is dumb, this is bad, this is, I hate id polls. Yeah, and it, and, and it totally does mean something for, for these, for kids to have a character who's like, that's like me. Yeah, it, it, you know. It, it does feel really good for them, and I don't want to take that from them. Yeah, and you know, the, I guess the problem is, is that it's not a means to an end. Yeah. It's kind of like the, you know, it's like a band-aid on a problem, mm. basically, you know, because... Okay, like, I mean, I'm sure we'll get, like, another Black Panther movie, you know, sure. and, uh, you know, those those actors and, and crew will, they'll get a good paycheck, but, like, does that really affect, like, the broader African-American community in any really, like, materially meaningful way mm. beyond, like, oh, we get, like, we get a big major blockbuster that has people that look like us in it. Yeah. I mean, the mater- the maternal mortality rate for black women in America is still, like... Horrific. Absurdly high. But, hey, we can watch a fucking movie <laughs> while you bleed out. There's a lady Captain Marvel now. As a woman, I feel f- fulfilled. <laughs> I-, I feel seen. I'm glad we had... There was a Wonder Woman movie with a strong woman with muscles produced by... Probably funded by some horrific crypto-fascist billionaire who wants mm-hmm. to take away women's right to vote but but there was a movie with her in it that was cool yeah like wow brie larson is such a badass doing propaganda for the u.s air right. force <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like these aren't good things i mean you know it's like and i'm a dumb idiot like everyone else in this country it's like i enjoy like i'll go see a fucking well-made super super yeah. hero movie i haven't enjoyed one since winter soldier but pff, whatever yeah. um <laughs> But hey, they're putting ladies in it, so you know what? What do I have to complain about? Yeah, yeah. Ugh, it's it's media's fun. Hooray! 
Have they <laughs> accused any of the uh, lady superheroes of being Mary Sue's? Oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure Captain... There was a big, like, angry nerd boy thing against Captain Marvel. There was a bit of a kerfuffle. Hmm. I'm not sure about Wonder Woman. I don't know about Wonder Woman. Maybe she's sexy enough that she yeah, gets a she, pass. Yeah, she's, she's wearing a bikini, so she's okay. Um, <laughs> but the thing... I really liked how um, people were so mad about Brie Larson's feet. What? So what? a bunch of people were a bunch of people were saying like those aren't her feet oh. in the movie those oh, are internet. stud feet and and they were posting pictures of her like because she had like she has like kind of a crooked toe and so they were posting like close ups of her feet at like red carpet what events. What is this era we live in? Yeah. Well, Foot journalism. The, this is the era in which no matter what actress's name you type into a search bar, it will autocomplete to feet. So oh, God damn it. There is that. <laughs> God damn it. I mean, we did have like a weird far right little publication <laughs> per, uh, uh, publish what they claimed. Well, actually, it was fake foot fetish porn of a sitting Congress. And so... And the people who oh. the people who proved the mystery wrong were, of course, the dedicated people of the internet foot fetish community. So this is the era we live in. <laughs> the history books are just gonna skip over this entire decade. There's just gonna be a blank page. You know, God love the white hat perverts. I salute them. <laughs> Thank you, horny Jesus online Christ. people, for your for your courage. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord! I feel I feel like I have just absolutely dragged your show through some uh, <laughs> some gutter topics. I apologize. I'm so sorry. That is, I'm so that's sorry. That's okay. That's that's good. That's fine. <laughs> so moving on um, from 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 foot fetishes to I don't know Oscar Wilde. That's probably related. Less than six to um, Bosie's feet. Yeah. What do you think? What kind of feet did he? I bet he was into feet. I'm sure he thing. He didn't write about it, but I bet he liked. I'm sure he could appreciate a nice pair of feet. It is the most like common fetish. So, yeah, like it's it would be either that or piss. Yeah. Oh, I could see him being into that. Could definitely. Mm. Yeah. Real, yeah. But yeah, and also very common. But anyway, yeah. again, dragging dragging your show. Through That's the all right. <laughs> Oscar Wilde argued that every story is some kind of projection of the writer, either the writer as hero or the writer as villain. Do you agree? Do you think it's possible to avoid that? Do you think it's possible at all to avoid putting ourselves antagonist? That is a really good question. And my my stock and trade isn't as an author necessarily. I mean, like yeah. I do I do write, but for the show, and I mainly do like visual arts, um, which involves like a little bit of writing, but not much. I haven't delved much into fiction beyond my own youthful indiscretions. <laughs> and certainly when you're a teenager you have a little less sense of shame you're you're exploring new ideas you're naive um your emotions are all out there they're so oh and you're so horny just so (laughs) horny and so you're exploring these things in a very naive way and i think the impulse is always write what you know right i mean again i think i mentioned i'm currently reading um bright lights big city which is like okay, this is Jay McInerney in New York. It just is. Yeah. It's a fact checker at a big New York magazine whose model wife has just left him and he does a lot of drugs and drinks a lot. <laughs> it's Jay McInerney. But it works because it's a, it's a, it's a wittily written book. Right. I, I'm trying to think of like counterexamples where um, <clears throat> the author is clearly either writing kind of against their grain or is exploring 
or is exploring a really problematic character, mm. like not just a villain, but maybe like an anti-hero yeah. or something like that. Um, I mean, it's natural. We're going to put our son to our own work because that's the thing that that is the person we know the best. Usually. Yeah. And like thinking of some of my like perennial favorite books. Um, okay. Problematic fave. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, The Jungle Book. I mean, did was Rudyard Kipling projecting himself into Mowgli, hmm. the the jungle boy who lived with the animals and kind of uh, ruled over them in sort of a, a a western way, if you really think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or other, geez, I don't know, like other fiction faves. All my problematic faves are coming to mind. Lovecraft. Oh God! <laughs> did he put himself in so stories? much? Dear God. <laughs> His, his every single thing was just here's what I'm scared of. It's fish and non-Caucasians. Yeah, every every single protagonist is just like a, a translucent wasp shut-in right. <laughs> who just fainted every time he like smelled spice. I don't know. Yeah, Edgar Allan well, Poe. Okay, Edgar um, Allan Poe. Every Edgar Allan Poe character yeah. is a sad widower. Yeah, or um, oh, like let's okay, we can get more literary. Um, yeah. Death in Venice. Mm. Thomas Mann, uh, that's that's Thomas Mann, right? Writing about a older author fixated on a young boy he sees on the beach, Ooh. who is based on a real person, apparently. Mm. <laughs> Maybe we're veering back into Victor Salvatore. Oh my! I don't Ooh. know. <laughs> that's a little alarming. Um. um, what about what about authors who write about women? Turn of the Screw, Henry Ooh, James. Yeah, yeah. That's- and I'm not now. I'm not the smartest person, but I do love Turn of the Screw, even though I find Henry James incredibly difficult to read. Oh, he's <laughs> very difficult. And especially because of the time. I mean, it's it's dealing with a topic that at the time was so shocking they couldn't explicitly say yeah. what it was, which just yeah. really makes it even harder to understand because they're just referring to this, oh, corruption scandal. It's like, okay, what mm-hmm. what what do you mean? What do you mean yeah. by that? What, what kind of corruption scandal? Then you look it up and you're like, oh... <laughs> Oh. oh, I see why you were being so so dense and oblique with this. Right. <laughs> yeah, so like, um, you know, uh, for example, Turn of the Screw, he writes about a hysterical governess, mm-hmm. um, Daisy Miller, right. I guess, which was later a film for Bogdanovich, Double Shepherd, and hmm. um, men making films and novels about women. Yeah, that is that is kind of interesting. Um, I'm wondering if this might not be the hero, the writer is hero, but the writer is villain in some of these instances. I'm wondering how much of this is coming from they're seeing the troubles of women in the society that they're part of and that they don't do anything about. <laughs> well, yeah, like, um, I mean, in, if you think of a lot of, like, kind of really popular novels of kind of the, um, uh, what do you call that when you're Charles Dickens and you've written, like, hundreds of thousands of words and you serialize it in a magazine right <laughs> um stuff like his or like the you know the woman in white oh wilkie um, collins yeah oh, um yeah which are like they're more like on sometimes they're like ensemble pieces right there's a yeah a bunch of different characters a bunch of different viewpoint characters but uh, god i love i mean in white. there is like a hero artist character though who's like he's the tutor of the of the damsel in distress and he goes away and then things get really bad and they're like oh no if only our art tutor were here he would save the day i can't help but wonder if that's a little bit of self-insertion from the (laughs) author (laughs) if only our art instructor were here he would rescue me from the villain (laughs) said no woman ever 
Which I think found its apotheosis in uh, Lady in the Water, directed by M. Night oh Shyamalan, in which uh, the villain is a critic. He's an art, is a film critic, and the hero, the martyr, the Jesus Christ character is even played by Shyamalan. By M. Night, God yeah. Damn it. Which, maybe it's just with, like, time... And maybe it's just sitting, maybe it's just because the culture's become like so degraded and cynical. Right. But you know, reassessing like M. Night and his incredibly dumb movies, you you kind of have to go like, you know what? Respect. You fucking went for it, dude. You just fucking put it out there. Yep. Like <laughs> you just put in the fucking. Well, okay. Like that brings us around. Gary Stu, like M. Night in his own movies. Absolutely. Like he put he literally put a heroic chosen one character in fucking Lady in the Water, <laughs> like played by the director. So like, okay, well, all right, done. All right, talk to you later. No. <laughs> oh my gosh. M. Night Shyamalan. Well, that was, um, that was actually a very fruitful kind of, um, I don't know if it's dull for the audience or whatever, but, the, the, you know, this kind of like cir- cycling through um, notable characters from literature and, and, you know, mass media, but... You know, it does kind of put it into perspective, especially because like the um, the culture, the cultural discourse has become so fraught right now with like right. strong female characters. No, this female character is too strong. Right. And also me, me and my 10 friends from Family Court are going to boycott your movie. <laughs> um, so to the point where um, like this week, there's been some incredibly stupid discourse about filmmakers like Scorsese and Tarantino, uh. where... Oh, Tarantino does violence against women. It's time we fucking cancel him. Uh, like, well, he also made Kill Bill and Jackie Brown. Uh, and I'm not even. I am not a Tarantino booster. No, like, no. I, I I love Jackie Brown, but honestly, a lot of his work yeah. doesn't do it for me. But that's he's good at what he yeah. does, but he can be derivative. And you know, the the excited fanboy from a video store thing is like yeah. a little bit old hat for me. Yeah. But whatever. Like you know, he he's he's doing what he wants. But to he's find. doing what he wants, you know, and people love it. I can't you know I can't deny that it sure does resonate with mm-hmm. a hell of a lot of people. Yeah, and I'm like, okay, like, and especially like, you know, we covered um, Tarantino ripoff films on the show, yeah. which make you appreciate what he's good at. <laughs> yeah. So credit where it's and due. And I will stand Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown is just really fucking good. It's really, Possibly really good. Possibly his best movie. Absolutely like, his best. Because it's about something other than, hi, I'm Quentin Tarantino. Watch me jack off for two hours. It's like about something other yeah. than himself. And it's fucking great. Hey, I'm going to say the N-word. You like feet, right? <laughs> Boy, I like feet. Um, there has been all this really dumb discourse about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood before it is even really hit theaters. Oh, God. Right. Oh, well, it's about the murder of Sharon Tate and Margot Robbie has hardly any lines. Like, cancel. Okay. Um, then there were people arguing about Scorsese. Like, Scorsese, yes, he is a filmmaker beloved of many a bro. But yeah. But he's I think a good, good filmmaker. And someone... Hot take, hot take. That Scorsese kid, he's going places. He's got some talent. <laughs> um, I actually saw a tweet this week where someone was... You know what? Let me let me find the fucking... I, I don't want to like misrepresent it. And I'm not, I'm not going to name this person because no. that's pointless. Right. They've probably already been dragged to filth. <laughs> right. Does it use the Sorry. phrase emotional labor? Because I feel like you get, you get, you fill your, bi- you fill your bingo card if the phrase emotional labor is used in regarding a piece of art. You know, 
do not even let me get started because people don't even use the term right. It's a specific academic term right. relating to managing customers' emotions in a service right. framework. It is not it is not listening to your boyfriend when you're kind of tired. Like that's not what it is. But anyway, I won't name the person, nice. but she was responding to um a somewhat well-known uh, guy who writes for the nation. Mm. I'll spare him too. They're talking about, you know, in response to this uh, nation writer saying Scorsese has been hit and miss for nearly 30 years. Depend, you know, whatever. Okay. Yeah, we can, we can have a talk about that. This person replies, Scorsese needs an editor of real gravitas, someone he respects, who says, Marty, there are five second acts in this movie. We're getting rid of an hour. Mm. Now, because I can't not take the bait. I responded to that on the podcast account with, did you just fucking drag Thelma Schoonmacher? Literally one of the most respected editors in the entire industry. Wow. And Scorsese's constant collaborator for literal decades. Mm. Like in one of the rare areas of cinema where women have made headway. Editing. I did not know that. Yes, there are there are many well-respected female editors for whatever reason. I haven't delved into the reason for those, but you know, for example, uh, my favorite movie of all time, edited by a woman, Anne V. Coates, Lawrence of Arabia. Oh wow! So because people are so focused on this very hot take of like, oh well, like this, oh this bro movie culture where we're just making bro movies about bro <sighs> things. Obviously, they're all made by bros. Mm -hmm. I guess. Fuck Thelma, fuck all the women who apparently work for Tarantino, because he actually does have quite a few female crew members huh. on his films. Well, that's cool. So I guess that's an example of where the, the, the id pull right. representation of film argument just becomes a reductio ad absurdum. Right. Where it's like, you're like, oh, this is bro these are bro movies that bro like, bros uh, like, so they're they're worthless, like can't this. Uh, it's so, it is so fucking stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it being film Twitter... You know, it's a lot like film YouTube where, like, you don't have to know a fucking thing about film, nope. but you can bloviate about it. <laughs> Yell the phrase plot hole, regardless of whether or not there is a plot <laughs> hole, and you're a film YouTuber now. Yeah. And maybe I don't have room to talk. You know, I have a film podcast. I got my film degree a long time ago. What have I done with my life? <laughs> yep. But, you know, I, I try... I try to bring information to people, and if I'm wrong, I encourage people to tell me, like, no, you got this wrong, mm. because I don't want to spread misinformation. Right. So if you're going to come for Scorsese, yeah. maybe at least verify the demographic makeup of his crew. Right. Like, that's all I'm saying. And I understand <laughs> that filmmaking is a collaborative process that a lot of people are involved in, and I think a lot of people don't know that. They think there's a director and actors, and that's it. And they even forget about the director, like the people who get really mad at actors because of the things the characters do. Like they think that the actors are just making it up as they go along. They don't understand that someone else writes the words down that the actors say. <laughs> yeah, and like, oh, like characters doing stuff you don't like or that you think is bad. Oh, That's a whole other discussion. Oh, but like, don't um, I don't remember. Was it you or was it one of my Twitter mufos who was like, we start talking about filmmakers like this. Like, aren't we just subscribing to auteur theory hmm i did not say that i don't know i think it was uh you know i think it might have been a film critic maddie whittle a very good follow on twitter hmm. very savvy film critic hmm. 
And she's absolutely correct because again, we're giving so much cachet to like a singular person on a film set. And even in the era of say Kubrick, who exerted very tight control over all aspects of his film or a Hitchcock, those are rare birds indeed. Absolutely, Filmmaking is a collaborative medium and there's very, very rarely like one all encompassing shot caller. Yep. You know, even the people with the money are, are they're still, they're still going to have, you're still going to have a push pull with crew. Right. And, uh, like the creatives. Like David Lynch, who's no, he obviously has his very own distinctive style, but so much of what goes into his work is just, oh, that happened on set. We're going to put that in there. Like the whole Bob being a thing happened by accident. Yes. It was just yes. one of his Killer crew Bob. members was his reflection got caught in a mirror and he said, you look really creepy. You're, you're a demon yeah. now. Here you go. <laughs> yeah, and um, that's amazing. And, and to kind of fight against that cultural notion of uh, film director as um, absolute dictator, you know, Lynch has spoken out against that himself. Oh, yeah. He's like, no, that's not that's not how you run a film set. I don't abuse my cast he and said, crew. I like, don't want people to be afraid. I, yeah. I want us to have a good time. We're a team. We're making something creative. Let's be friends. Yeah, and like that's it's sad that that's such a rare thing to hear. Yeah, and I think it's because we have kind of, and there's so many reasons for this, we've kind of exalted um, the, sorry, dude, I know you're long dead, uh, the Eric von Stroheim-like mm. figure, you know, leather boots and riding crop, you know, director is like absolute control of everything on the set, um, often to a toxic degree. Like, I mean, if you look at how Bertolucci treated Maria Snyder on the set of Last Tango in Paris. Oh, God. Yeah. You know, just to name like one example. I mean, one of my, again, problematic fave, Lars von Trier. Oh, yeah. He's been accused of abusive behavior on his set. Yeah, Bjork really, really had some yeah. grumpy things to say about him. Yeah, and like, I've gone, I've gone to bat for the guy in the past is like you know i don't i don't believe his films are are misogynist i think mm. that's, a, that's a misreading of what he's doing but you know what like he he does seem like shithead in real life oh yeah you know? <laughs> like but you don't have like you're saying and like lynch was saying you don't have to work that way that's not the way to get optimal right but i think because we see films that were brilliant like in spite of the conditions and we're like oh this must be how that happened so you have to shit on people constantly yeah we just don't question it. We question this idea that, oh, someone has to suffer for our entertainment. Like, it's kind of a fucked up thing. Because yeah. at the end of the day, I mean, I love art. I love film. But mm-hmm. this is entertainment. It's not like we're at war. <laughs> we're not <laughs> We're not defending ourselves against a foreign invasion. It's, we're making a movie about, I don't know, gangster or whatever. Kind of ridiculous mm-hmm. that we accept. Like, yeah, someone should should be injured in a way that gives them a permanent physical disability in order so that I can watch this fun movie about vampires. Kind of yeah, fucked up. Yeah, I mean... That's not great. Yeah, another director I love, William Friedkin, like, fucked up uh, Ellen Burstyn's back oh, God. on The Exorcist. Oh, God. Because she was on a she was on a harness, and, you know, they had to do an effect shot where she's pulled back, and she was like, can you get the guy to stop pulling so hard? Like, she caught him, like, shaking his head no to Whoa. the guy, like, operating the thing. And, Jesus. yeah, she, has, she had, like, permanent 
permanent back problems. Um, right, Uma Thurman like smashed into a tree on uh, yeah. one of the Kill Bill movies. Quentin Tarantino threw a fucking tantrum about she didn't want to drive the car because she felt unsafe in it. Yeah, and like I, I don't know. Like looking at it, like I, you know, I saw the footage, and you know, if he, if Quentin has any kind of a soul, like he probably still feels bad about oh, it. Sure. Maybe he smoothed it over the Uma. Maybe they haven't. You know, but it doesn't make it right. Yeah. And it doesn't mean we should just like gloss it over because again, I mean, that's, and if you, you know, if you want to get into your, like, again, the, the, if you want to put on your DSA hat, that's like a, <laughs> that's a, that's a labor issue. It is. You know, you need to treat your crew and your cast with respect. Like there's no, like art is very important, but right. uh, suffering for art is just a absolutely tremendously overblown and ridiculous concept. Yeah. Like, suffering does not make great art like suffering makes it hard to make art often impossible demanding that someone else suffer for your art is particularly awful if it if you're just a huge masochist and this is your choice then that's i guess that's your prerogative but demanding that someone else put yourself in harm's way for your art is really not okay with me (laughs) yeah because i guess it's one thing if you're like i don't know if you're if you're painting in your basement and you're exposing yourself to the toxic fumes yeah. of the paints, that's one thing, but like, it, you know, in a collaborative medium, you know, and that applies to certainly film or music, you know, or music or even writing. Honestly, um, I mean, you have editors, you have, you have a guy who designs the book, mm-hmm. you have beta readers, you have fact checkers. Yeah. You have other people. I mean, it's very, very solitary, but I don't think there's such a thing mm-hmm. as purely, purely, individualistic art there's usually someone else involved in some way yeah because i think to get like purely individualistic art you'd have to go to like outsider art where there's like little to no input what's i mean like uh, where a guy is found dead and someone discovers he has a notebook full of all of these drawings or something that nobody yeah you have to you'd have to be a you'd have to be a henry darger basically you know to be like the true like you know solitary artist and but you know maybe that's kind of a disease of our culture like certainly american culture where um you know we worship the individual of overall else and we love like horatio alger type stories where um people luck into incredible success all on their own volition kind of forgetting humans are social animals and we're supported from you know if we're lucky supported from a young age by all the people around us certainly formed yeah if not supported so absolutely there's that but um, I don't know. We named some. Uh, we named some characters. We named some. Uh, we named some Sues. Yes. Last question. <laughs> I think uh, we went on y- yet another tangent. Yeah, I'm That's sorry. Okay. I, uh, it's fun. Who cares? It's it's a podcast. Maybe I... It's a friendship simulator. People can <laughs> can listen and pretend that to that they're friends with two very smart arty ladies and feel really cool. <laughs> They'll be like, well, like, yeah, you know, like, like Jen's cool. You should lay off the caffeine, though. <laughs> no, never. I refuse caffeine. Well, if you like this, listen to Have You Seen This? Available on Spotify, iTunes, Cloud. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, one last question. Do you think the term Mary Sue is still worth using? Or should we just abandon it because it's become so diluted? And if we got to abandon it, what would be a good way to talk about that kind of ridiculous wish fulfillment, self-insertion character. Well, I think I made the point earlier that I don't want to say that fanish discourse and tropes has kind of polluted the mainstream. <laughs> that sounds too pejorative, but it has leaked out there, especially with um, 
what used to be niche fandoms, like suddenly becoming incredibly lucrative. Right. You know, like now everybody's a nerd. So, you know, you're going to see more of this kind of nerdy discourse. And it's like, I think we were saying, maybe like off mic or before the show, that, you know, there are certain terms which are extremely useful and then are seized upon by the general public and then are just beaten beyond recognition right or you know overused to the point of uselessness gaslighting being one. Oh god yeah gaslighting mansplaining um yeah um, terms that refer to a very real distinctive thing that that it's great to have yeah. a term to be able to to describe it for sure it's great to be able to describe oh that's gaslighting or oh yeah that's mansplaining that sucks when that happens but. Yeah, and it, it is it is very it's a mixed bag because obviously um, the awareness of abuse dynamics is critical because you're giving people the language to describe often what has happened to them. Right, and that's that's a step towards rectifying it or at least healing from it to a degree. But you know, words get chewed out of shape constantly. It's how like emotional labor has been deformed as out of its. Original meaning is like a specific phrase having to do with labor in a service context. And now it's just like, oh, like my boyfriend like whines at me a lot about his job and I don't like it. Like I'm always doing the emotional labor. Right. It's 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 become like this very this very bourgeois like lady of the house. Oh, my God. My husband didn't remember to order the fucking cupcakes for the kids party this weekend. And I have to have the perfect party kind of thing. When it used to be, it used to refer to, like... Was it stewardesses? I remember there was a book called The Managed Heart that was all about, like, how flight attendants in the 1970s, they, a big part of their job was doing this emotional labor and, like, ba- making the customer feel like, hi, I'm your girlfriend in the air, and it just really yes, fucked exactly. them up. Really yeah. divorced them from their own emotions by monetizing it in this really dehumanizing way. Yeah, thank you for thank you for cutting to the heart of it. That's that's exactly what it is. And so, in and finally bring it the fuck back around um, to my point. <laughs> um, the term Mary Sue, which originated in extremely female fandom spaces, it's not to say that there weren't like guys writing fanfic, but as someone who dabbled in fandom for hell, like close to a couple decades, right. these were these were very female centered. Um, Pursuits. Man, fanfic does seem to be kind of a woman thing. It, uh, I mean, I know guys write it, but over and over again, it just mm-hmm. seems to be like very, very, very female, very teen girl. Yeah. And so, you know, without speaking with any, um, you know, measure of judgment, fandom being fandoms being often um, at least the fanfic space is being very female. You know, these terms were kind of confined to that fanish enclosed female space. But Again, you know, we had the explosion of superhero fandom and Return of Star Wars fandom and everything. We have um, social media. Geek culture just becoming mainstreamed in a really, really big way is a little weird sometimes. Yeah, so geek culture metastasized because it's very profitable. And now that everything in pop culture has been turned into this gender against gender culture war, you see the term Mary Sue weaponized to mean I don't like female characters in my stuff right. doing stuff. I mean, like I hate to be reductive, but and I don't I don't buy into most of the kind of like uh, you know, for a good example, look at the site The Mary Sue, which right. is a, a 
a female-centered um, kind of like geek um, yeah geek pop feminist culture pop culture website. yeah like I've moved away from that mm. but you know that doesn't mean that I don't see a lot of the misogyny in you know what is flung at women in fandom oh yeah female creators it's like it no it's there yeah and I mean, don't forget the person who got the most heat for calling Ray a Mary Sue. He's an accused rapist. <laughs> Wait, who was this? Max Landis. Oh, God, that was, it was him doing that? Yeah, when he was still on Twitter, he tweeted, oh, it, yeah, like Ray's pretty much Mary Sue. Oh, my God. Well, we've come full circle. Yeah, did I bury the lead there? I thought that I brought it up when we were talking we about were, um, the Landis. We might have. <laughs> I think it might have gotten lost with me thinking about how his dad decapitated two or three people, two of them children. That's sort of that. I can't get over that. <laughs> Little plug here: um, if you can get a copy of the book, Outrageous Conduct, um, might be out of print. I bet it's out of print. I bet they don't want you to buy that book. <laughs> Probably. Um, but if you can get a copy of the book, Outrageous Conduct, it tells you all about the what happened on the set of the Twilight Zone movie mm. and the aftermath. Absolutely a little bit dry, but if you like true crime at all, um, and if you're interested in, you know, the seamier side of Hollywood and who isn't, yeah. um, I recommend digging up that book. It's, it's at my local library. It might be yours. So anyway... Um, I guess that does bring us full circle because, yes, the person who accused Ray of being a shitty Mary Sue character is absolutely one of the most toxic people in Hollywood. Right. <laughs> so, and the son of take a murderer. That for what you will. <laughs> a rapist who is the son of a murderer. The son of a murderer who killed Do one I of need the to only alleged... nice guys. Like, Vic Morrow sounded like he genuinely was a, a good dude. And it's like, seriously, yeah. the one guy in Hollywood who's not, like, secretly a molester. And he gets his head cut off by a helicopter. And before he could reconcile with his daughter, Jeffrey Jason Oh, Lee. fuck. That's yeah. the worst. At the time he died, he left her a dollar in his will. Oh, my God. And she was 84, 85, so she was like 21, 22 God or something. Damn. I could be wrong. Yeah. Hollywood's a fucked up place. It man. is. <laughs> Leave it. Take to the sea. Mm-hmm. Return to the ocean. It's better. <laughs> you know what? Fuck Hollywood. Go back to the little hermetic fan spaces. Write whatever shitty Mary Sue self-insert you want. Yep. You don't have to show it to anyone. Or you know what? Just show it to your friends who understand. Yeah. Who the fuck cares? Yes. It's supposed to be fun. Fandom is supposed to be fun, and it's like it's not fun anymore. No, it's depressing. <laughs> it is a bummer. All right. I think that is it for tonight. Thank you for coming on the show and talking about film. <laughs> And Mary Sue's and fandom. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for indulging me. I feel like I ran at the mouth quite a bit. So No, uh, it was fun. It's fun to have these kinds of discussions about culture in film that don't revolve around the like, ah, oh, it's a strong female character, but is she too strong? It has a little bit more nuance <laughs> than that. Well, if I can encourage anybody in the audience to, you know, think a little bit more critically, then, you know, maybe I've done some good in the yeah, world. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Thank you again. This was fun. That's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, please head over to patreon.com slash writegood, that's R-I-T-E-G-U-D, and subscribe. And be sure to listen to us next time when we talk about men writing women very, very badly. This has been Write Good with R.S. Benedict, hosted by R.S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That's R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. Mm-hmm.
KittySneezes.com in color.